What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. And this week we have Michael Tronic sitting down with me to discuss Straight Outta Compton. Now, if you're going to be in New York in November and you're going to CCW, let us know because we're going to be actually at CCW covering some of the events. You can get us at info at AOTG.com. Of course, you can get us on Twitter at AOTG Network and on Facebook, Facebook.com slash AOTG Network. Of course, if you find anything post-production related, make sure to submit it at AOTG.com or you can use our browser plugins at AOTG.com slash plugins. Now, with all that said, it's time for my interview with Michael Tronic. Can we start with how did you get involved with this project? I got a call from Universal to jump on board. This this has been the year of, of my coming in and help out. I did the same thing on Furious 7 for about three weeks, just coming in and fresh pair of eyes and kind of giving an overview and, and looking at the film and trying some minor restructuring and plot points and things like that. So when Compton came up, at first I got a call and then there was a delay and I, then I got a call to come on and um, I said, absolutely. So it pretty much comes from uh, from Greg McGritchie, who's head of post-production at Universal, who's a an enlightened post-production executive, and also from uh, from Donald Langley, the uh, CEO, and uh, I think maybe even John Moan, the executive in charge of production, had something to do with uh, asking me to come on board. So I started work in, in March of uh, 2015. The original cut, when it came in, uh, through what I've, I've read, is it was around three and a half hours. So how did you and Billy go about reining that in and, and getting it down to the two and a half hours it is uh, without affecting the story in a, a negative way. Billy did really all the heavy lifting. When I came on, the movie was 2.35. So they had already made some pretty major choices, but overall, the studio was very concerned about the overall running time of the movie. So I was pretty much left alone to, once I started, I saw the movie at a screening room at Universal and was knocked out by the performances. I mean, I think for me as an editor, even if you're starting from dailies, first impressions, gut responses to what you see in terms of performance are always the most valuable. So instead of watching the movie on picks on my iMac or my monitor at home, I wanted to see it theatrically just to take in the experience. And they had just previewed, so it, was, it had a really a good mixed track to it. So I sat and watched it and kind of made some mental notes to myself in terms of areas that I thought the movie might have possibly lost a little momentum or its direction or its focus. Uh, not a lot, but just enough where as an old white guy who I know I'm not the target audience, but surprisingly, has, has, the movie has appealed to just about everybody. You know, as an editor, I'm always about engaging an audience, making, making plot points clear so that the storyline can be followed. Unless, of course, there are some scenes, I mean, like Memento or something like that, where it's kind of an obscure storyline. But with a biopic, you know, you pretty much have to follow a linear path. Although, you know, there's, there's always exceptions to the rule. So uh, I was set up in a cutting room, and ironically, even though it was a universal film, we edited in facilities at Warner Brothers because there was no room for Compton at uh, Universal. And so um, I was set up with, with an avid in the media and the movie. And uh, Billy was a very gracious and welcoming host. Uh, sometimes in these circumstances, it can be a little bit awkward 
or some editors can feel a little threatened or it can be sensitive. But my first response whenever I get this call is always to call the editor. That's just the way I, how I handle myself. And just to say, look, you know, I've just been, got a call from the studio to come in, you know, and, and I'd met Billy a couple of times before on a dubbing stage because uh, I was helping out on a John Singleton film and Billy knew John and he just happened to be on a dubbing stage. So, so I, I, I texted Billy right away. He was very beyond gracious and welcoming. And uh, I think he welcomed the opportunity to have someone else just help him out because the work was pretty overwhelming. Although he, his three and a half hour cut, I saw the, I saw the three hour cut. I never, I never saw the three and a half hour cut. It's pretty amazing. I mean, so I was left alone to examine the movie and look at different performances, look at restructuring, look at tightening, just try to get a certain momentum to the film. So I had a version that was under two hours and 20 minutes. So I guess the global process was was just kind of give and take. And then instead of saying, okay, it's one versus the other, it's what features are there in each version, which we can merge to make the best possible movie. So there was a lot of give and take, a lot of discussion, a lot of experimentation on both sides to where, you know, that merging was made, but we were continually cutting. So, but again, for me, the underlying impression I come away with it is that Billy and Gary were very welcoming. And I think Gary enjoyed me being kind of like a gadfly a little bit, challenging him. I think as someone who grew up in L.A., was born here, and was well aware of, of the band, I didn't know their music that well when I started. I didn't know the names of the guys, of all five guys. I was a traditional rock and roller. I, you know, NWA didn't play instruments. So, you know, in a way I was being a little bit, you know, arrogant. Not ignoring them, but I was also a little bit older when it came out, when Straight Outta Compton came out. But I can say unequivocally that I am a huge fan and have the greatest respect for the talents of these guys. And, and, and it was probably one of the most singularly educational films I've ever worked on. And I've, at this point in my career, I've worked on a bunch. So just in terms of learning about the lives of these guys, learning about what it was like to grow up you know, as an artist in South Central and what, how the careers blew up and, and those impacts. And I was, every day I would, I would learn something new, just got my jaw would kind of drop and say, you're kidding. <laughs> you know, and it didn't hurt having Dr. Dre and Ice Cube in the cutting room sometimes either. And they were just magnificent. I feel like they're very intense guys to be around, just from the interviews I've seen and the footage and what have you. Yeah, I think when they came into the cutting room, it was fairly much a relaxed, more of a relaxed atmosphere. Scott Bernstein was the, a very hands-on actor-producer who had to kind of, he was like the godfather as far as coordinating all the schedules and times and getting everyone to come in and getting a consensus. So it wasn't easy getting everyone in, but the, the times that Ice Cube and Dre came in, of course, my crew was all excited and they had albums that they wanted to autograph and they didn't hesitate doing that. But Cube is, and I, I think I can call him Cube as an Ice Cube at this point, but Cube has got great film instincts. He's a great, great sense of story in terms of character arc. And Dre also has very specific ideas about the music, obviously as, a, as an extraordinary producer. But since both these guys realized that this was probably the only time that their life story are going to be told on film, they had a lot at stake, a lot invested, and they wanted to make sure it was right. And I learned from them too, as far as, okay, I might have cut something a certain way, and I realized, oh, 
this is how this happened. So if I do that, that will kind of minimize. I'm just being vague, but so it's so like being being true to them, being true to the story was, and of course, above all, Gary's vision was kind of like our my focus in approaching it. But it was cool having those guys in the cutting room. I mean, my daughter was working at a performing arts school in, uh, in Alaska for the summer, and I was working on a Sunday, and Lauren called me. She FaceTimed me, and um, I picked up my iPhone and said, you know, I can't talk to you now, Lauren. I'm working. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, it's it's Sunday. I said, yeah, I know. But uh, and as his father, I said, are you okay? Is everything okay? She said, yeah, yeah, I'll check back with you later. But before I could hang up, Ice Cube came over and picked up my phone. And you know, he said to Lauren, yeah, your daddy's here working with Ice Cube, and he's doing a good job. <laughs> so. And, it, and 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 they talked for like five minutes, so that was kind of a unique experience for her. I got a little dad cred where she had a FaceTime conversation with Ice Cube as she was sitting up by a lake in Sitka, Alaska, with a runny nose and stuff. But uh, it was pretty great. So uh, I was very impressed with how he just uh, picked up the phone and and, and all that. But uh, with these guys, they made me comfortable to the point where I just listened and realized what they were saying was really valuable. And Gary Gray was also extremely generous with his time and with the time in the cutting room to enlist these guys to come in and review and to help with issues that had to do with what scenes should be in, what scenes should go out, what has to be trimmed, and and the overall flow in the arc of the film. Which would be tough in terms of figuring out what should and shouldn't go in because just there's so much happens in their lives before they hit 27 uh, because that's when Easy e passes away. So... How did you guys, like, what was the decision process behind what, what should stay and what should go? Like, how did you approach that with some of the scenes? There were a lot of factors involved. There was a very strong voice from the studio, although very respectful to the filmmakers. Uh, Universal is exceptional when it comes to that. But still, they let us know how we felt about certain scenes. The, prob- the problem area for me was, and it, that wasn't even a problem. That's probably the wrong word. The film, the film worked. You know, it previewed in the 90s when I came on. So the film was working, yeah. but thought that the length was too long. Ironically, people say, I wish it didn't end. I wish it went on longer. But after the band reaches the height of their success, after the, the concert in Detroit, and they come back to L.A., and Cube decides to go on a solo career, and uh, the boys go off on their, their own. And so... At that point, it almost becomes, it's the group splinters and becomes almost like five separate stories. And you, you lose the tremendous excitement and exhilaration of how they formed and how they performed and the concerts and the girls and the whole bit. And then finally things kind of, you know, they come crashing down to earth, although the music, you know, didn't affect it. So that period of the movie, for me, had to be looked at and approached judiciously in terms of moving a story forward. I'm not saying not as quickly as possible, but as effectively as possible. And I will say that uh, the DVD, the director's cut, has a lot of these scenes that were kind of like controversial. They're in, they're in. For example, there's a scene where Easy takes Tomika out on a dinner date, and it's very charming. And you see Easy as more than just a drug dealer talented musical guy you see him as someone who's a little bit not he's a little he's a little vulnerable because he's with this woman he actually actually feels something for and you know it's like a, we've all been on first dates it's kind of got that nervousness and it also 
gave Kamika a certain ID, you know, who she was and what she was. So when that she shows up in Easy's house when he's watching footage from the riots and she sits down next to him, you get it. You 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 know who she is. But the dinner scene was was kind of a momentum killer in terms of pushing the story forward. And as it turns out, uh, I don't think anyone really questioned who Tamika was because it turns out that she's a very strong character in the scene when when Easy's financial world is falling apart with Jerry Heller. You know, she says, let me check out the book. So, oh, okay, she must be some kind of accountant. You know, she understands all this stuff. And then you can tell how much she really loves him because of the hospital scene. So that the restaurant scene was not in the domestic theatrical release, but it is in the DVD. And we, we cut all kinds of versions, short versions, long versions, you know, just to try to get it in. And actually, that was one of the scenes that when I made my first pass, I kept in. I like seeing Easy in a more vulnerable, kind of a charming light. Jason did a fabulous job. I think he's wildly charismatic. So that was it. You know, it was always very painful, and it was always give and take, and it was always it was almost like a, a chess game as far as okay, if we try this, we have to take something else out, or do we just cut the scene down, just get it down to its bare bones, and and that's what I did. I I like to challenge Gary, and to a certain extent, Billy and. Scott Bernstein. I'm not saying brutal, but actually Gary started, he coined this phrase, let's tronicize this scene, which meant, you know, really cut it down, get it, get it down to its bare bones. Sometimes that was easy uh, as far as getting out of a scene earlier, but if, if you get out of the scene earlier, then you would miss some little subtle nuance about the interpersonal relations between guys in the band, for example. There was a scene with no Vaseline. It was a great scene, you know, where they're listening to Cube sing you know, his diss version of after hearing that he was Benedict Arnold. And it's, you know, just the, the lyrics are devastating. And there's a part in the movie where Jerry Heller starts yelling at Easy, saying, you know, we're not going to take this. Who the fuck does this guy think he is? This anti-Semitic piece of shit and goes on and on. And Easy finally stands up to him after Jerry challenges Easy. He says, you got your ways of doing things. I got mine. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be a great point to cut to the record symposium where there's a fist fight. In other words, Easy had sending his guys to beat up Ice Cube and his group. But if you cut there, you lose some very subtle dynamics of NWA as far as Yella disagreeing and Ren kind of challenging Easy's authority and all that. So Gary was very appreciative of my efforts. He liked being challenged, but ultimately he said, we're putting that back in. And, and there are things I, I fought for vehemently as far as starting scenes later getting out sooner, you know, just kind of a normal approach to when you're dealing with time issues. It's what's, what's really needed. So it was, uh, it was challenging because the movie, and there's so much more to it in terms of story. And the, the fact that it's, there's five characters mainly that we have to follow. Yeah. And trying to find a balance yeah. between all five. That's very difficult because Yella and Ren aren't the charismatic upfront guys. Yella is very, very funny. He's got these quips that were great comic relief. And Ren is kind of like this imposing, you know, very kind of stoic figure who just doesn't take shit from anybody. Mm-hmm. So their songwriting and performance talents weren't upfront. I mean, they're, it's almost like you know you, they're almost like the 
the bass player and the drummer, they're in back, although they're the backbone of it. You know, Mick Jagger, that kind of, you know, the lead singer's out front. Yeah. But we were very aware of that in terms of if we cut this, if we cut this dialogue from Ren, then he really has, doesn't have a lot to say. So keeping that balance was in the forefront of our approach to the overall movie. Now, earlier you had talked about, like, you'd screen the film and really explored the the actor's delivery because of the importance of that. And I was going to ask, looking at O'Shea Jackson's performance, uh, he was actually amazing. Like, this is his first feature film. And so I'm wondering, what did you look for in the rushes for O'Shea's stuff? Because it just came across so phenomenally. Luckily for me, by the time I came on, Billy had spent, as I said, had done all the, done all the heavy lifting in terms of O'Shea's performance. There was just some minor subtle things that in terms of credibility and nuance that I, I would look for something that I thought potentially could be a little bit more effective or credible, but pretty much Billy nailed it as far as his, his selection of, of takes. But it was a, it was a miraculous performance. I met O'Shea Jr. in person in a van when we were doing some shooting and I just, I got confused who was who. <laughs> was this the actor or was this Cube, you know? And just his mannerisms on stage, his, his physicality, it was uncanny. And it was like he was born to do this role. And it's funny because there's a scene where Ice Cube in the movie is reading the script for Friday and in the background you see two kids playing and you realize, okay, that's O'Shea himself as a being played by an actor as a young kid. So, okay, you know, I guess that gets a little confusing. But again, the movie is full, filled with kind of these magical little nuance. And you know, all five of the, of the guys, and, and that, that was my first takeaway from watching the 235 version, was that Gary got phenomenal performances. I mean, I think they looked at, I want to say, 3,500 possible easies. And Jason was a chef at a restaurant in New Orleans and had theatrical experience, very little film experience. So the advantages that, for me, of having actors who are not recognizable is they don't come in with baggage. So they become the character. Although my daughter recognized Ren from Friday Night Lights. I didn't watch the show. I hear it's great. So I didn't recognize anyone except for the facial similarities of, of O'Shea and, of course, Giamatti. I think the actors realized what this movie could potentially mean not to themselves in their career, but just to the African-American community. I perceived a tremendous sense of responsibility to be true to the story, to be true to the characters they were portraying and do the best possible work they could because this was a rare opportunity for them all. You know, when I saw the kid that played Tupac, it was like, oh my God, you know, he looks just, it's crazy. So Gary was very, very particular about all the details all the nuances and just, again, just to be true to the, to the band and the era and their story. I guess it's, it's just tons of respect. And I loved the sort of, the, just the tip of the hat to little moments. So, you know, like Wrecking Crew wasn't acknowledged before in the, when Dre's dressed up in, in a weird way. Uh-huh. Starting the film with You're Now About to Witness and then ending the film with Damn. That shit was yeah. dope, which is yeah. exactly what Straight Out of the Compton starts with uh, and ends with. So just these little moments for the the audience. Yeah, and it's very clever. Uh, but even the kids I've talked to who knew the band, my niece's best friend lives in Richmond, Virginia, and her husband is a southern boy, white kid who's probably in his 
I'd say mid thirties, he would be like the only white kid in line to buy these records or go to the concerts. So they crossed, you know, the racial lines when my daughter was going through the bar and bat mitzvah phase of her school and, and we'd go pick her up and all these kids would be dancing to uh, hip hop or rap, you know. So I think it was the appeal of, of kind of the outlaw appeal of, of that was great. But uh, I didn't know Wrecking Crew from, I mean, obviously I knew Tupac and, and Snoop Dogg and stuff, but there's so many, I didn't, what's the, what's the group, uh, uh, Bone, oh, Bone, Bone Thugs, Thugs and Harmony? I, I, I'd never heard of them and I didn't know what that meant. So again, that that went to the education of Michael Tronic in the world of rap. <laughs> so, or or as I'm called by by my daughter, OWD, which stands for Old White Dad, <laughs> or MC Tron. I kind of like that. That's the one of the guys called me. So, like to acknowledge, because you said that they they cross barriers, right? They, they they cross all these barriers, and I guess if you're watching the audience, like they start in that one concert where it's mm-hmm. in a very rough area. And then as they become more and more popular, the crowd becomes more and more white. Yeah. In Detroit, especially, you know, for that big concert, but even, you know, when they're, when they're doing the kind of the montage stuff, when you realize that it's a pretty diverse audience and then it does become pretty white. I mean, for me, it was a privilege on so many levels to work on the film and I'm on one of the best things in my it's happened to me. My career was getting elected to the board of governors at the academy and representing the, the editors branch. And of course, the the academy is is pushing for diversity ethnically and gender based and all that. So to work on a movie that is embodying what diversity really can do, and potentially you know with these great artists, that was also like I you know I felt very very proud of of, of being associated with that. Not that I was responsible for it by any stretch, but just to be there just uh, contributing to something that I think we all had a sense that was pretty important, but we never had the idea that it was going to play in the, in the red States. No idea that it would play outside the, you know, the urban areas, but I'm glad that uh, we were proven wrong. One of the things in the, in, if it was like a superhero film, we're doing their, Mm -hmm. their backstory at the beginning. And you, you know, when I've talked to people who've worked on the Marvel projects, they always say front-loading the, the film is very hard because you don't want to bore the audience. You want to get right into the story. So right. how did you and, and Billy approach that for this film? Because we get right into NWA pretty quickly, but you still give us a ton of background information to give us context. I think the movie kind of opens up with a quasi-action sequence, you know, with, with Easy going to the crack house to sell his wares and, and the LAPD busting in. And I remember those battering rams, you know, growing up here and stuff. So that was an adrenaline boost, that scene. And then to contrast that with Dre on his back listening to records. So, I mean, I love the way the characters were introduced. And then, you know, seeing Yella and Ren introduced and O'Shea on the bus and with that amazing gangster scene. So what we had going for us is as much as, you know, and I worked on the first Iron Man with Dan, you know, you're dealing with with basically one superhero, I guess, except Avengers. But in something like Compton, where every character has to be set up and introduced, and it, it goes back to these guys are tremendously charismatic and compelling. And I think the screenwriter did a great job as far as kind of encapsulating where they were at that moment of time, where they had been. So it wasn't, never was boring to me because I was just entertained. This is a new world to me too. I mean, obviously the world of Stark and Iron Man, I, I don't have that kind of money or that kind of brain to do that. So that's kind of a different world, but this is reality based. 
So I've never walked out of my front yard and been harassed by the police. You know, I've never had to deal with Crips and Bloods when I go out to a club or a restaurant. And these guys do. And these guys, to this day, deal with fairly dangerous environment in their neighborhoods. So the reality of what they're growing up in, I think, is very compelling. And the reality, like I think what most kids can relate to is, what are we going to do with our lives? You know, what, what, what are we going to do when we grow up? Is this music thing viable? I mean, rap was, was still in its infancy in, in the late 80s. But to see where these guys how clever they were as far as, you know, working in uh, the garage of the, of the club owner to, to forge this career. I think immediately you start rooting for them right away. You don't need to see them as 90-pound weaklings transformed into 220-pound, you know, mega killers or something like that, you know. And, and listen, I see everything. So there's a, the Marvel world is extremely entertaining. It's visually astounding. It's clever. It's all that. But it's based on a comic book. You know, I don't know what I don't know I don't know what an NWA comic book would look like, <laughs> but I think it would be a lot different than a Marvel comic book. Yeah. So these are real lives and and real lives of young men that a lot of people knew a lot about, and even those people who knew a lot about them learned a lot from this movie. So that was that was the other thing when people come up to me, Gordon. It's such a rare occurrence in one's career where you can kind of savor this amount of success to be a part of it. And I would believe me, I was a small part of it, but I was still a part of it. You know, I give credit to so many people that had so much more, you know, the years and development. And I was, so relatively, I was just kind of like a blip on the radar. But to see the response from my 80-year-old Aunt Miriam to teenage kids to when I was screening over at MGM yesterday and, you know, the kids talking about, all they want to do is talk about NWA and Compton. So I haven't had that kind of, oh, that kind of gratifying experience. I think probably last time was, was Remember the Titans. Again, another true story. Again, an interracial story about prejudice and overcoming uh, racial obstacles to, to realize goals. So there is room for these nonfiction-based movies. And I did a movie last year, what the one I cut in Toronto called The 33, you know, about the Chilean miners who are, mm-hmm. and that's a real story. So somehow, I think sometimes these, if you recognize that these are real human beings that are being portrayed, the emotions are that much more powerful, which, which worked pretty well for this movie. What about tone? Because what I find interesting is the first sort of part of the film has a very, I, I don't want to say dark tone, but I guess mm-hmm. you're trying to introduce the world of Compton, essentially, and then they slowly get out of it. So I was wondering, how did you guys approach tone in this film to make sure you got it right and got the sense of or the feeling of Compton right and then them getting out right? I think a lot of that was kind of handed to us because of the of Maddie's cinematography and Gary's staging and, and everything from set design to costumes and all, where that world was created for us pretty much. And sound-wise, too, Mark Steckinger was our sound designer and did a brilliant job. I think there's subtleties in terms of, you know, the grittiness of the sound, you know, the backgrounds and the effects and all that just to kind of build this world. And then when they got the trappings of the wealth, things kind of changed where even, you know, the color of the movie got a little bit more saturated and rich and not quite as desaturated and, you know, excuse the expression, kind of ghetto as as the opening Compton sequences. And um, so I think that was, and for us, it was it was just being true to the story. But my response is I was handed this and it was a matter of putting it together. So it was kind of inherent 
it was built into the scenes that we were dealing with. So a lot of thought, I think, went into the design, the casting, everything to to do exactly what you were talking about as far as going from Compton to the riches of you know Agora or Beverly Hills, wherever these guys ended up. Before I, we did the interview, I, I talked to John Benson and I said, you know, because he said he's very thankful for all you've taught him and everything. And so I asked him what I should ask you. And he <laughs> said, because you were um, a music editor originally, how did you work with the music from an editing standpoint in this? Most of the songs, except in a few places, are played in their entirety. Again, that's out of respect to the songs. Although the beginning, Dope Man, you know, you don't get to hear easy verse. You will in the DVD, and that was a time consideration. So cutting rap music is difficult. Just the rhythmically of, of, of the tempos, and Billy did a great job with songs, and I did very little except for uh, Fuck the Police. I had to rework some things in there just for other issues. During the mix, I was very uh, very aware of the underscore, and Joe Trapanese had to walk kind of a fine line because there isn't a lot of score, and it can't become sappy or melodramatic, but still has to have emotion. So I was very outspoken as far as my response to that. And we found a lot of areas where score was used. The performances were so powerful, you didn't need underscore to tell you what to feel. So we, we sometimes we would just pull back on the starts of cues. Um, and other times we didn't. So, I mean, to this day, I don't know the, the titles of all these songs, but I, they're sure in, in my head. Uh, the night I got the gig, I downloaded the album and was driving to dinner with my wife and we're listening to, you know, the lyrics of these songs. And it's just kind of like, whoa, <laughs> you know, it just, <laughs> it was like, man. So I, I had to be very careful, but I think when my, my daughter, you know, I'm, as you can tell, I'm very family oriented. Yeah. And my daughter was an undergrad at Yale and she, she's a very talented musician. And we fly back every year for, to hear musical performances. And uh, she sings with this group called Tangle Up and Blue, which is a folk singing group. Really, really terrific. 17 kids, and they all sing that. So afterwards, I said, Lauren, your shit is dope. And she, <laughs> you know, she, just, she, she cracked up, you know. So that was the fun part. But, you know, I always, I, I always, and even cutting dialogue scenes, I'm very, very much aware of rhythms in dialogue. I heard that George Miller will sometimes run scenes, MOS, just to look at how shots go from cut to cut as far as where your eye is and what the colors are. And, and for me, I'm almost kind of like the opposite. I could almost just listen to the rhythms of dialogue in terms of how I would approach editing a scene and whether it was because I was a Charlie Watts wannabe drummer when, in high school and college, but I always grew up in a musical household and fortunately still do. So it's kind of just like there are things intrinsic in the movie as far as its look and its approach, I guess there are things intrinsic in all of us, and I happen to have kind of a strong musical heart as far as my approach to material, whether it's, you know, Miner's Trapped Underground for 69 Days or John's Revolta performing in Hairspray. You know, it's just, and I was fortunate to have worked with some extraordinary composers and extraordinary musicals, you know, going back to all that jazz, which still is a part of my DNA when I approach things. But Benson uh, asks, a very good question. He's a phenomenally talented guy and, and so passionate about editing. And uh, uh, I'm, l I'm lucky to have had him as an assistant for a couple of pictures. You mentioned that cutting hip hop was really difficult. So what was it that made it difficult? Uh, Ice Cube's lyrics tell such a linear story that I was actually, frankly, between you and I, but you can tell the world, I was relieved 
when I did, because again, I have a tremendous responsibility and respect to these songs. It's not like you can lose a verse or lose eight bars out of a 16-bar intro and, and no one's going to know the better. But when you take out a section of a rap tune, you kind of pull the carpet from underneath the story that's being told. So, I mean, and I've listened to these lyrics and listened to them. I said, do we need this? And I say, yeah, we do. Because if you don't talk about the yellow tape, you know, that police put up and, and that, then what follows, it just makes no sense. And I think just as we've made this Marvel analogy, just as the kids who read these comic books and know every nuance of what Iron Man is supposed to do from his stance to whatnot and to his, his heads up display and all that. I know there are kids who are out there who know every lyric of every NWA song. And I wouldn't want them to get upset that we had done something out of order. And that's why that, again, it's respect for the songs and the content and the structure. And when I did try to, you know, just again, just the mantra of, just let's try to make it shorter. Okay, what happens if I make a cut here? And it just didn't work that well. And it just wasn't worth it. You know, sometimes you have to forget about running time and just go with best for the movie. And other times it's all about running time. Now, I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone. Of course. And uh, we had done an interview a long time ago and I'd already asked it to you. So I'm going to ask something slightly different. And that's uh, because you're into music and as you said, you want to be a Charlie Watts drummer. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure album to listen to guilty pleasure oh that's a tough one um i i don't feel guilty about it but i just put wilco and radiohead on all the time oh you know what i do i you know what i'll do i'll put on um fillmore east the uh, uh almond brothers okay and play uh whipping post okay i'll play whipping post or hot lana yeah or or i'll play dazed and confused from the first Led Zeppelin album yeah. because it's got the best power chord section of any rock and roll song and I dare anyone to beat it before it goes into the breakdown but it's just bam, 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 bam. yeah so sometimes I'll put on you know because I mean the Almond Brothers for me were just a miraculous band before Dwayne Almond passed away you know those two guitars and those two drummers and so I'll crank it I, you know I grew up in the 60s where music was just as important as important as oxygen, and and I, I went to concerts. I saw, you know, the, the, the Stones, blah blah blah, and and I had my stereo up to eleven, so mm-hmm. I still crank it in the car every now and then. So as far as guilty pleasures, not that guilty as Little Feet that I love a lot because of their their rhythm sections, but as far as just being home on Sundays, I listen to Beethoven, and um, when I'm cooking and or just hanging out in the house. I love Jeff Tweedy. Thanks, thanks so okay. much for letting me interview. Okay, thanks for considering me. It's always a, a an honor, and uh, I hope it turns out well, and and people will will listen or read it and um, gain something from my experience on this extraordinary film. That was my interview with Michael Tronic. Remember, if you're in New York, we're going to be doing our coverage of CCW in November, so make sure to check that out. And of course, you can always get a hold of us if you want to discuss things or let us know what you think of this podcast at AOTG Network on Twitter, on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. Or, of course, you can always get us via email, info at AOTG.com. I'd like to thank Michael Tronic for joining me for this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Merkel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>